Hello, welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Before we get into today's show with Dr. Kelly Brogan, let me tell you about our sponsor, Kettle and Fire. Thank you for being our first sponsor of the podcast. So Kettle and Fire, they're a bone broth company, and they're based around the entire United States. So they've got people in all different parts of the country that are providing this bone broth to people from farms, organic, pasture-raised animals directly to your door. So they've got beef, which is delicious, but honestly, I prefer the chicken bone broth. It is amazing. Now, I got a bunch of questions when I first announced them as a sponsor. People said, well, isn't there an issue with lead in bones? No, that's not the case, especially if you've got the animals, the cows and or the chickens in this case coming from organic pastures. There is no issue with heavy metals there, especially because these are some very pristine farms that these animals are being sourced from. You can get 20% off your first order by visiting notjustpaleo.com slash chicken. Now let's talk about Kelly Brogan. She is a superstar. She's a medical doctor, and she's a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in Systems Neuroscience. She's board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine and is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. Let's get right into it. Dr. Kelly Brogan, welcome to the show. Total pleasure. Total pleasure. Hey, so we connected by a, by a cool method. Uh, I had known about your work for a while. Maybe I'd email you previously about doing a podcast. Maybe I didn't, but either way, somebody sent you my Uber petition to ban synthetic fragrances, and you said, hey, Evan, this is pretty cool. You beat me to the punch. Uh, that that was a fun way to meet, so I really appreciate you know uh, you helping out and trying to spread the word about it. Yeah, it was such a pleasant surprise to learn, you know, that we share the same health space. It's not, you know, obviously that shocking, but, you know, because I think there are people, you know, using these pool services and, and, and just feeling an inner, you know, agitation about it and frustration about it who don't have the overarching perspective that you and I do about why this is really, you know, a health hazard. You know, they just feel it's gross. (laughs) So I was really surprised and Super pleased to learn that you were behind it. Yeah, Definitely so like minds. If people are like, what are you talking about? I've mentioned it before, but I created a petition on change.org, which you've probably come across before. And I wrote a petition to Travis, who's a billionaire CEO of Uber, which apparently there's a viral video going around of him cussing out an Uber driver. I don't know if you saw that video. I didn't have the pleasure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so anyway, so maybe not the nicest guy to try to get a hold of. But anyhow, this petition is designed to have either a fragrance free option or just ban synthetic air fresheners total. And I wrote up the story and put plenty of research. And then uh, Dr. Brogan came along and she wrote an article too on her on her blog, kellybroganmd.com. And it was all about is your Uber air freshener making you sick? And there's plenty of research between the two of us in terms of phthalates and the synthetic fragrances and them being neurotoxins affecting the health of your future kids affecting the nervous system i mean this is just nuts so obviously this is only one piece of the puzzle um, but for you when you're working with your patients how big of the the pie for health is 
the chemicals, the fragrances, the eating organic. I mean, how is there a percentage that you could say like, yeah, this is 33% of the issue and then 66% to other stuff? How do you break down your, your clinical oh. care? So I think because of my allopathic training uh, and also my personality, I spent a lot of my early you know, sort of uh, functional medicine career looking for the magic bullet, really, you know, like I switched over from prescribing meds and then I started looking for the magic, you know, cure, uh, whether it was figuring out the culprit, you know, that was driving illness or figuring out the one intervention that was going to, you know, change everything, whether it was like a supplement or, you know, chelation or whatever it was. And in more recent years, um, my outcomes have really skyrocketed. And I think it's because I've abandoned that mentality and I've begun to embrace sort of like all at once kind of an approach. Um, so it's very basic pillars of lifestyle medicine, um, but they're applied, you know, simultaneously um, and with a pretty heavy handed commitment, you know, so any of my patients would tell you that I'm not an 80, 20 kind of gal, you know, I believe really strongly in like a one month, 100% commitment to lifestyle change. And so part of that is addressing the, you know, toxicant issue, right? So part of it is looking at every single purchase that you make, um, and every single, you know, sort of element and agent that your body comes into contact with and applying a different mindset of empowerment to that, right? So, because that's always going to be a part of what my patients and online clients are doing, there isn't a way to tease apart its relative impact. But there's no question that what we know about, you know, sort of industrial pollutants and really the large scale, as we were saying, like large scale human experimentation that's underway when it comes to the unconsented exposures we encounter every single day um, they're synergistic often, right? So we used to think it was like the dose makes the poison. That's what decades of toxicology research, you know, are predicated on. But now we understand that it's like this potential cocktail effect and it's these even low dose but synergistic exposures then speak to your endocrine system, speak to your established stress response patterns and have a specific impact on you personally. And then maybe accumulate with other burdens, whether it's dietary burdens or, you know, sort of, you know, sleep um, deficit or movement deficit or, you know, sort of um, other kinds of um, stress exposures. And so it's a, it's a way to drain the bucket to begin to become more mindful about these, you know, these daily um, burdens, so to speak. I love that you're more strict with people and you're not afraid to say it because a lot of people like to try to give a justification like, oh, you can yeah. have a little bit of a treat or a little bit of a this, but it's like, where does that line end? Because then you're getting glyphosate or you're getting gluten or it's like exactly. you almost shouldn't go down that rabbit hole because then it just becomes a matter of you trying to justify or feel guilty and then that mental illness part just makes you worse because then you're beating yourself up and that can't be good. Listen, you know, I am biased because I am an extremist um, by nature. So I see the world that way. But the truth is, if I, you know, I reflect back to the patients I work with, I like to believe I reflect back to them, their best potential, right? So I'm not imposing, you know, my edicts on them. I'm just showing them what is possible if they put their mind to it. You know, we know from 
feats of, you know, yogic mastery that lots of stuff is possible if you can get your mind out of the way, right? So this is part of my sort of premise that every single adult deserves one month. It's a month of your life, one month of your life where you clear the slate of addictive foods, you clean you know, as much of your local environment as possible, plus minus, you know, more personalized interventions like coffee enemas, for example. And you begin to pause on a daily basis. So I ask my patients to do a specific kind of meditation for three minutes a day. And you give yourself this month, no supplements. So there's no supplementation for the first month so that you can see what your baseline is. Don't you deserve that, right? Like, don't you deserve to at least know what your baseline is so that when you reintroduce some of this stuff, like let's say you have a cocktail on day 38 and, you know, then you can't sleep the next night and you're like super tired and then you're craving a cup of coffee, then at least you know. And if you want to drink, you know, four days a week for the rest of your life, you're not going to think you have a mental illness. You're going to know that it's just because this is your relationship you know, to the effects of this substance. But I wouldn't, you know, I would argue that, of course, and I'm, I know you would agree, you know, that that sugar, wheat and dairy, for example, are also addictive substances, you know, that they also pull and push your judgment and cloud your relationship to yourself in the same way. And so I'm, if you don't have that month, you're just going to be chasing your tail for long periods of time. And that's how people become like professional patients, you know, where they're just always trying the next thing, trying the next thing, doing another test. And, you know, I used to, you know, I used to complexify things, but now that I've really gotten clear on this simple one month commitment, uh, you know, everything's become simpler in my practice and my outcomes, you know, have reflected it. So that's amazing. And I want to just get people up to speed. They heard your bio in the intro of the podcast, but you being a holistic women's health psychiatrist, and you're talking about wheat and sugar, I mean, that's so unconventional. So I could just spend an hour just tooting your horn about how amazing that is that you're talking about this link, but I'm sure you've got enough of that. So I do want to... <laughs> I do want to get more specific. However, you've now zoomed back out and you're just focusing on key foundations and you're getting just as good, if not higher success rates by just getting these first pillars on board and dialed in. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, in my online program, uh, Vital Mind Reset, we, there's no labs. You know, there's There are, I recommend them, they're in my book, whatever, but nobody's really doing before and after labs. And in some ways, I wonder if it actually accounts for why the results from my online program are more rapid um, and frankly robust than in my clinical practice. Because maybe, just maybe, you know, the, the labs that I do up front with patients are somehow a distraction and, a, and a, an allocation of energy towards what's wrong. You know, it's, it's possible. I don't know. This is all theoretical. But yeah, I do do upfront um, blood work, nothing too fancy, just at a local lab. Um, and there's no supplementation and otherwise we're just dedicated to the month. And most patients are coming to me to come off of psychiatric medications. Um, but we don't even, you know, shave off a thousandth of a milligram before the month is over. So it's like a, you know, a do not pass go kind of a thing. Like you, you, you must complete it or, or you don't even, you know, get a follow-up appointment. So it's clear, you know, how passionately I feel about it. And then of course, what I'm trying to engender is an experience, right? Because I can 
talk to patients on the intellectual level about what's possible and why this is really important, you know, for them to take control of their health in this way, et cetera. But the truth is, if they can have an experience of shift inside their own body, you know, then it's done. You know, my work, my work is done because that experience is what opens their mind to a totally different way of thinking about health. It's what allows them to shed fear. You know, in my practice, the expectation is that my patients will never use pharmaceutical products of any kind, not antibiotics, not painkillers, not vaccines, not birth control pills, nothing. Um, that's the expectation. And the expectation is there because the part of my screening process is, is to establish that we share the same mindset about the way the body works and the, the meaning of symptoms, right? That symptoms are not just random and annoying and bad luck, you know, but that symptoms are telling us something we need to better understand and are like breadcrumbs along a path to an important message, right? So I can't get them fully on board if they don't have an experience of their body as resilient with a tremendous potential to heal, which can happen it literally in, in the month, in the span of the month. That's amazing. Now, something that's interesting here is in the, the writing on your page about your program, you mentioned the word isolation. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what does that mean to you? Are we talking social yeah. isolation, people stuck on their couch scrolling on Instagram for hours? <laughs> Pretty much, with the, with the blow-up doll um, surrogate, you know, that is social media. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is, um, you know, what I was mentioning to you earlier, I has been a really profound lesson to me because I don't offer my own patients, um, here in New York city, any sort of group support, right? It's one-on-one me and them, you know, a little bit of emailing between appointments and that's pretty much it. But in my online program, there's a community, several hundred people, and it's very active and it's really good vibes. Like unlike a lot of the communities around psych med injury um, or really just sort of like, you know, chronic health issues, the the vibes are really, I don't know, spiritual, I would say. And, you know, I don't design it this way, um, but it just is. It's very loving space. And I have witnessed that that is the special sauce, you know, that that's pretty much what takes vital mind reset is exactly what I do in my practice. It's exactly the same thing. There shouldn't be a difference. And in fact, my outcomes through the program should be worse because I'm not screening those people. Right. But you know, we've found it's quite different. And so I I think it's the power of community. And in fact, you know, there's some recent um, literature that's actually speaking to the inflammatory nature of social isolation, that actually we have embedded psychoneuroimmunologic pathways that help to you know, sort of inform our behavior when we are isolated, that we need um, group contact and that there is every reason, you know, for us to prioritize that. But, you know, we don't live in tribes. We don't live in community. We live in these modular boxes, you know, and we don't even have families, half of us anymore, uh, or meta networks, you know, of, of support. You know, I just came back from India uh, for a couple of weeks and it was really transformative for me, not only because I saw what it is to live really simply, but in deep community, you know, and the the average American doesn't even know what that looks like or feels like we're so, you know, far off the path. It's, it's a, it's a problem. And it accounts for a lot of what we are calling mental illness, which is, which is the very expected response to something being missing, 
you know. That gives me goosebumps, you saying that. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that because I was reading your article, Spirituality and Mental Illness. So you're talking about you kind of raised the question, is the suppression of spirituality in the West the problem? I believe yeah. it totally is. I mean, I've had massive spiritual experiences, and that doesn't have to involve religion. It can, and, no. it, and it may, but for me, I've had mind-blowing spiritual breakthroughs with without religion being involved. Totally. What what was that like when you say super simple? What compare that to your to your daily life or someone's daily life in Manhattan versus what you were experiencing over in India? Yeah, listen. So so I'm half Italian, right? My mom is from um, T- Tuscany, and we go back there, you know, every other year or so. And my heart just like explodes every time I'm there. Like it just they have a way of living life in in Italy that that makes us look like, you know, uptight robots. <laughs> you know, they're like we're just like it's just so wrong. But being in India was like that times 10,000 no because way. it it was much deeper for me because it is um, you know, in Italy they're religious for the most part, right? It's, it's more, um, denominational religion, which of course in many ways involves, you know, sort of the secular realm, your life as you conduct it. And then the spiritual realm is like allocated out here and you go on Sundays and it's like that kind of a thing. It doesn't permeate the day-to-day life. And in, in India was my first experience being in a culture that is by default spiritual, you know, like every single person walking the land there, let alone the the roots, you know, sort of tens of thousands of years of Im- embedded mysticism and, you know, tradition. It's just the default way there. And for me, it wasn't something I could, I mean, I tried to write about it, but it really isn't something I can even put into words because it was like a, a soul level feeling. And it, w- it was a feeling of what is missing you know, and and I wouldn't even have known had I never gone there, you know, I wouldn't even have known what was missing. It's probably like the spiritual experiences you've had. Once you have them, you can see what it was like before, you know, you could see what it was like to not have had that experience. And you probably think like, oh my God, I could have gone through my entire life. What if I never had this spiritual experience? You know, I would have been half asleep. So it's like a way of, coming into contact with, with a very simple premise of being held by a fabric, you know, and, and, and we don't have that here. It's, it's in America, you can have friends and lovers and whatever else, but it's really every man for himself. It is, you know, that's the nature of the American way. It's, it's a dog eat dog, you know, sort of rat race. And even if we, we consciously try to cultivate our lives differently, that is the energy underpinning um, our culture. And there's just a cost that is so epic um, that I'm just beginning to, to, to reckon with it. But I think in, in real terms, in health terms, it has mostly to do with psychiatry, because I think we are blaming people, we are blaming their brain chemistry ridiculously for what is deeply wrong with our lifestyle here. And, and our lifestyle, as you and I know, includes you know, diet, it includes the way we relate to stress, it includes the way we, you know, sort of compulsively exercise or never exercise. And and it involves, you know, our toxic exposures, but it also very much involves our relationship to struggle and suffering and grief and sadness. So so that the bar for medicalizing human struggle 
is now so lowered that you can barely cry for more than 30 minutes without someone in your life being worried that something is wrong with you. You know, we're at this point where there's no room for anything but functioning, you know, and, and we, there's, that's a tragedy, you know, we're, we're in trouble and we're going to begin to feel the effects of that more and more because now 16% of our population is medicated, but that number is only going up every year. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, so basically you went there, you blasted through a new, a new door of consciousness. That door cannot shut now, now that you've blasted exactly. open that perception. You can't unknow it. That is a That's trip. Exactly so right. literally by osmosis, you absorbed that vibe, that energy that was there. Now, did you bring it, it home? It's like a remembering, you know, it's like a remembering. It's like, oh, of course, you know, it's more that feeling, um, and, you know, that's what I say to my patients, you know, because because some of my patients, you know, worry as they're moving through this awakening process, which is strangely part and parcel with coming off of these medications. You know, they they worry like, well, you know, is this permanent? You know, like, am I going to always remain in this expanded place? And it's kind of like what you said. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. Um, but it's we're so entrained that, of course, I mean, I've only been home a couple days and already I'm back in my life. You know what I mean? And so that's why I'm a deep, 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 deep convert, um, when it comes to a daily practice of meditation, because, um, I was really, really resistant to committing to meditation. I got the food thing down, you know, cleaned up all my products. That was like no problem. But the meditation piece really is only like a couple, maybe two years out of 10, for me in the past, you know, decade that I've really taken it to be a serious commitment. And the way that my life has changed and my productivity and all the elements of alignment with your flow, you know, ha has changed in the past two years, I completely credit with a daily practice. So for me and my personality, it's not optional. It's like a non-negotiable, but that's how I hold on to, you know, whatever it, whatever it, is that, you know, whatever these pieces are that I collect, you know, through my uh, exploration of different kinds of consciousness. So I want to ask you more about India, but you mentioned you do a specific type of meditation. You do, you recommend the same thing for your patients. What is that? Is that like transcendental? Is it like mm. where you focus on your right hand? Is it where you focus on your nostrils breathing out on your upper lip? What is it? Yeah. So I followed the literature on mindfulness-based meditation for a number of years, like Benson Institute, you know, they've been cataloging the benefits of meditation down to the, you know, genomic level for, for four decades. And I was, you know, I wrote about it. I knew all about it. And I just never could translate it into my own personal practice because people who need to meditate by definition don't want to meditate. That's sort of the deal. <laughs> you know, that those, that conflict is built in. Um, so I was addicted to stress. I like being stressed, even though I complained about it. And I just never made the time. It seems like a really for other people to do, right? Like other people can meditate. I'll just write about it. So it wasn't until I learned about, um, through a series of synchronicities, I learned about Kundalini yoga, which came to America in 1969. This guy, Yogi Bhajan brought it from India. And, um, since then it's, you know, sort of been a bit of a fringe, you know, version of, of yoga, but it's enjoying like quite a zeitgeist right now because people are learning about it. And in many ways it's considered to be the, the branch of yoga that is most focused on consciousness transformation. 
So whereas like vinyasa is focused really on the physical elements, um, this is really combining every single tool in the yogic arsenal so that you can wake up and quickly and so that you can still be in your life. So you don't have to go to a cave for a year, you know, and fast. You, you could be in your life, but you spend a small amount of time every single morning, ideally before dawn, and you can move through your own awakening process, shedding layers and layers of your ego. And it's uh, very weird. Um, in fact, as a former atheist, I was like, had a lot of alarm bells because I was like, is this a cult? Like, you know, everyone wears white and it's like, you know, a lot of weird chanting and it just was so struck me as so odd when I first started doing it. Um, but it's not, you know, there's no, no, there's no pressure. In fact, I am the, the biggest zealot you'll ever meet. Like most people who do Kundalini are very quiet about it. They don't, you know, say much about it. They certainly don't coerce anyone to do it. And meanwhile, I'm like handing out flyers like a Hare Krishna on the side of the street, you know, like I, I feel so strongly about it because it's completely changed my life. And I started with three minutes a day, literally. So like, you know, the, the meditations are very busy. Like there will be a hand thing you do and then there's a special breath pattern you have to do and maybe you're supposed to look. Imagine you're looking down at your chin, for example. There's just a lot of stuff you have to do at once. So it's really good for people who have busy brains, right? Because it keeps you occupied. And you have an experience in like three minutes. That's all you start with is three minutes. And over and over and over again, I get feedback about how amazing it is that you could feel a difference in three minutes. And it, this stuff is all free online. Like you Google Kundalini yoga meditation for digestion, for, you know, heartbreak, for cultivating intuition, for self-love, Google anything and you'll find one that you can adapt down to three minutes. Like it'll say, do it for 11. Do you just do it for three? Try it out and see how it feels. So, you know, often I'll start people on um, one that's called meditation to act, not react, right? Sounds good. We could all use that. And it's like a, it's a primer. And all I ask them to do is wake up in the morning because this is what worked for me. Wake up in the morning. Don't brush your teeth. Don't do anything. Sit up in bed and do it right then. Three minutes and you're done. You move on with your day and you're, you've already done something awesome for yourself and of course, you know, now I do 45 minutes every morning and it's like, it's a non-negotiable. It's a totally non-negotiable aspect of my life. So I don't care what my patients do. They don't have to do Kundalini yoga. They can pray to a leprechaun for three minutes. I don't care. But they must, must, must stop and do this once a day for three minutes every single day. So you said alarm? Every- I do, although I wake up before it every morning. I used to, I'm such a workaholic. I used to go to bed at like two in the morning, just, just reading, writing, whatever I need, felt I needed to do, especially after I had children. Then I put them to bed at eight 30 and I was like, Oh my God, my night is starting. Right. So for me now to be, I go to bed with my girls. Now when I'm home, I go to bed with them at nine. That's when I go to bed nine o'clock as a New Yorker. That is like, I can't even believe that that's my life. But you know what? It's because I'm committed to a 5.30 wake up no matter what. So if I go to bed at 11, it's going to hurt all the more for me to wake up at 5.30. So I've trained myself now that I go to bed at 9. And you know what? My productivity is so um, 
it's incomparable. Like it makes me feel like I was asleep for the past eight years relative to what I can get done today. And I've heard many people describe this phenomenon that if you just go to bed, (laughs) you know, just go to bed, you will get more done in your waking hours, especially if you set your, the template of your day and your stress response with early morning meditation. So I'm big into it. So last, well, now we just had daylight savings time, so we sprung forward, but the baby's been going to bed at like 7.30, and the other night, my wife laid down, and I was going to lay down, and I looked at the clock, and it was 8.04, and I thought, wow, I actually don't feel bad about this at all. Now, <laughs> I'm not waking up at 5, I'm waking up at like 6.30, um, so it makes me wonder, maybe I should set an alarm. So you have an alarm set for 5.30 then, but you're saying you wake up before the alarm? I always do. And you know what? That happens to most people. If you go to bed, you know, eight hours before your alarm is set, you're going to wake up before it. It doesn't mean it's easy. It is painful every single morning for me to to get out of bed. It's painful. And so that's why some people are waiting for it to feel like, you know, the sound of music or something when they're waking up in the morning. It's not going to be like that for most people. There's like three to five minutes where it just sucks. It just sucks. And you move through it and you get on your mat or you sit up in your bed or whatever you need to do. Um, and then it will begin to feel really sweet, you know, so. Okay, perfect. <laughs> That's my infomercial on meditating. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're the best. Okay, so now, I mean, I got to ask the honest question. How in the hell are you doing reintegrating into Manhattan from India? And you, I mean, I'm honestly, I'm very thankful. And I hope that this is a pleasurable part of your reintegration is talking with me. Because for you to do that and then to come back to Manhattan, I just, I I don't know how you're doing it. So what is that like? And then what are you going to be doing over the next couple of weeks, do you think, or or what do you intend to pull from that experience and say, okay, I've got to apply this to the American world. Like you've got this lens now, you're going to put this filter over Manhattan life. What is that filter? What is that going to consist of? Yeah, I appreciate that question. You know, it's funny because I felt... I mean, listen, and I have friends in the yoga community who go to India for months, so I can only imagine. I mean, I was just there for almost two weeks, so um, it it certainly wasn't as as challenging as it could be to reintegrate, but it was funny because I felt really ready to come home on some level, and then I landed at JFK, and literally tears started like running down my face. I, I didn't feel sad. I didn't even know why I was crying. I mean, I love my life. Like, I have no reason to feel bad for my, I, I have the best job in the world. Like, I don't have Sunday dread, okay? So it was very strange that this was happening. And then the following two days, I would just, like, cry for no reason. And it was funny because I had, I had a patient from New Delhi, and she, she came in, right, and she was, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I just came back, you know, I just came back from India, and I started crying, and I was talking about how beautiful it is, and she was, like, looking at me like I'm really certifiable. I mean, she, being from there, I don't think she could see what I could. Exactly. You know, and there's this um, famous quote from the Dalai Lama that talks about how the Western woman will save the world. And, you know, woman being a very um, general term, you know, and, and so my sense coming back was like, yes, Westerners, maybe particularly women, I don't know, going over and, and, and spreading, you know, their energy around the world to, to, to pick up these lost sort of indigenous flavors and ancestral sort of um, traditional, you know, sort of wisdom 
for us, it has such a power because of the, the infrastructure and bedrock of our consciousness being so, um, you know, sort of skewed in, in masculine energy that maybe there is some truth to that. Like maybe for me as a Westerner to be exposed to that, I can see it and feel it in a way that someone from there is hard to even appreciate, you know? So, you know, my agenda and my mission, um, is to basically, you know, sort of reclaim the human experience from, you know, the grip of the pharmaceutical industry. And this is um, a very elaborate web to untangle because our authority structures, our FDA, our government, and the many, many people who have bought into the notion that we are protected by these agencies um, who look after our well-being are colluding in a story that basically says that the human experience is rife with potential dangers, that people are sick and chronically so, you know, that to abandon Western medicine is dangerous. So the fear is so pervasive um, that the only chance I have in my activism and my mission is to cultivate experiences of soul contact, right? So the more you have people, you know, have the experiences you're describing where you have contact with with your own soul, where you have contact with something, being a part of something bigger, where you experience deep grief and then an hour later a kind of joy that wasn't available to you before you experienced that grief, the more we hold space for these kinds of micro, um, you know, self-initiation experiences, the more a knowing is going to bubble to the surface that what we are doing is wrong and, and it's not working and it is leading us down a blind path with promise after promise after promise that, you know, these promises are not being fulfilled, you know, that, that, that taking the edge off, you know, is a worthwhile consideration or, you know, you know, depression is very dangerous or, well, obviously when someone's bipolar, they need medication. You know, these are all the memes that I have tried to deconstruct because, you know, the, the kinds of experiences that my patients and personally, you know, um, write about and talk about, and I've started to do video interviews to prove to everyone, you know, what I, what I'm talking about, um, you know, with patients and, and program clients, it's so much more incredible than anything that's available to you through the Western model. It's like of an epic kind of, of beauty that's happening at this like accelerated rate right now in, in, in human history. We have so much access to awakening right now, maybe because we have so much information and the tools can go right into people's hands. You know, I, they don't need a doctor. I'm a totally unnecessary part of this puzzle. So it's a, it's a really cool time we're in and I hope to just, I don't know what's next, but I hope to just continue, you know, every day to recommit to creating a a more beautiful experience, you know, for, for all of us. Well, I think you're totally necessary because you have to pass the torch and be the, be the light in so much sea of darkness. Even if that's your role, I think you're very important for that role because it is a dark place typically when we're talking about mental illness and typically there is so much fear. So for you, if I can put words into your mouth and you tell me if that's right or not, to overwhelm the fear, you've Mm got to have – whether it's spirituality, but you've got to have something that's going to fill up the soul – 
which can then overpower the fear. Exactly. That's it. That's beautiful. And exactly it. And, and I learned that totally, you know, in a backwards way, because I came from a place of, of sci- scientism, right, is the term for what I, that was my religion. Like, I really believed that science was everything. And if science didn't have the answer, then it didn't exist. So, you know, as a belligerent atheist, so all of this, I mean, my transformation is so 180 that I, it help it helps me, you know, to, 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 to have empathy for people who are not there yet because I've been on the other side, but this side that, you know, I get to bask in, you know, now every day, um, it's just so liberating to live life without that feeling of like, Oh God, when am I going to get cancer? Or what, what about Zika virus? And Oh my God, are, did you hear about, it's just, it's just not the way I live. Like I'm not afraid of anything. I don't feel stress. Like I trust if shitty things happen, that there's some reason, you know, and some important message in it. It's not easy. It's not like I float through life on a cloud, but it's, I'm grounded by something that just makes everything okay. You know, and that's all I want, you know, for pe- for people to fundamentally reconnect to like okayness. But I think you're right. It needs to come from some sort of um, uh, an embracing of, a, of gratitude and a lightness and some sort of meaning there. Ha- you know, suffering ends where meaning begins, you know, is sometimes, you know, stated. So it's a it's a tall order, but I think it's more available to us now than maybe ever before. Agreed. And I know we got to wrap this up, but can I summarize by saying it sounds like what you're saying is you've got this choice. Everyone has a river. The river is going to flow no matter what. So you've got the choice whether you want to try to stand there and you're going to try to build a dam and you're going to put this stick in place and then this wall and then this bigger stick and this bigger dam to hold it back. And that damn dam is going to bust or you just have to flow downstream and it's much easier to readjust your coordinates as you're flowing downstream. 100%. I, I think that, you know, water metaphors really work. I often talk to my patients about how like when you're, when you're feeling like you're drowning, right, you can thrash around, you know, and, and freak out and you probably will, you know, you'll probably manifest exactly your worst fear. But if what we all know, if you just float, like your body actually has a built-in mechanism, an anti-drowning mechanism, right? And all you do is float. So it's, um, it's a nice construct and it's a nice idea to talk about going with the flow, but it becomes so much easier. The first challenge you meet with that mindset, like the first time, uh, you know, you, you get the symptoms of the flu, let's say. And the first time you commit to seeing that experience through without medication, supporting yourself naturally, even if it lasts three weeks, whatever it is, the very first time you do that, it's, if you get to the other side, not only has your body had a learning experience and and an upgrade, so to speak, biologically, um, but your mindset is subtly shifted, you know, and it will become easier the next time you want to approach life with that embracing, not fighting mindset. So it, it is practice. It's a daily commitment. And it becomes easier the more experiences you have that affirm this, you know, sense that there is a, is a flow, a design, that there is a meaning that we, we have to reach for, you know, and that extends all across, you know, human experience from, you know, health to interpersonal relationships. So it's, uh, it's exactly as you said, you know, going with the flow ends up 
preserving a lot of precious energy. It's corny and cliche, and a lot of people hate cliches, but they're there for a reason. They it's work. true. It's true. You make me think of my wife when she she gave birth to our daughter naturally, and she didn't awesome. think she was going to be able to do it because she said her pain tolerance was so low. And then after it was all over, she said, I'm so glad I did that because mm. now I know what I'm capable of, and I'm yes. much more powerful than I thought I was. I'm like, holy you crap. See? Oh, that's like my anthem. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's all I have to say about that. Exactly. It was exactly. Cool. Well, we got to wrap this thing up. I'm sure we could chat for much longer. But I know, exactly. We both got to roll. So we'll send people back to your website, kellybroganmd.com. And then is there any other things or places or words that people should know about before I let you go? That's, you know, I, that's it. I try, I have a newsletter. I try to keep people sort of updated on you know, whatever I, uh, is on top of my mind and also to share these stories, you know, um, so that people know, like, you know, like your wife said, what's possible. I'm really into sort of creating the space for that, um, template. And, and so, yeah, it's all, it's all on my website. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to chatting with you again. We'll have to do this again. Absolutely. This year. Total pleasure, Evan. Total pleasure. Okay. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show with Kelly Brogan. As I mentioned, no, I didn't mention in the beginning, so I'll mention it now. If you're interested in a 15-minute free call with myself, I block out about three hours per month for 15-minute free calls. I love chatting with people across the world. I learned so much from my clients. I mean, I learned so much, so much, so much. So if you're not in clinical practice and you're touting health information, to me, I don't think you're as good. So anyhow... Schedule that 15-minute free call with me back at the website, notjustpaleo.com. Now, if you're not interested in that, you still need to scroll down to the bottom of my website. So if you're on your phone or on your computer, you're probably listening on your phone. So go to the website, and then when you get to the bottom, you're going to see a little box that says, Get My Three-Part Video Series for Free, which is about adrenal issues or adrenal health, copper toxicity, and parasites. So it's a three-part video training series and it's completely free but that's your way of getting on to my newsletter and i've got some cool stuff coming up this summer so i definitely want to be able to notify you of those events anyhow talk with you next week bye bye